Well, good morning. Welcome to our time of gathered worship as the community of Fellowship Church. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us via our live stream. We're glad to be together, uh, near or far, as we begin a new week, reorienting and recentering ourselves in the story of God and God's people. God invites us just as we are in this moment into an awareness of God's presence. Not because we are faithful, but because God is. At the end of Moses' life, God gave him a song to write down and teach the Israelites so that they could return to it in future days and know that God's word is trustworthy. It's a song about God's faithfulness and how God carried God's people along, sheltered them, and led them with love and mercy. And it's a song in which God promises that even though the people would turn away toward other gods and other loves, God would go to great lengths to bring them back and prepare the way for reconciliation. This morning, as we enter into worship, I encourage you to consider how has God provided for you specifically throughout your life over this past week? How has God provided for us as God's people and for our restored relationship with God, with each other, and all of creation? I invite you to hear these words taken from that song that God gave to Moses to teach to the people. It's Deuteronomy 32. Hear these words. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he will tell you. Your elders, and they will explain it to you. In a desert land, he found him. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with them. Would you stand and let's sing praise to our faithful God.
one time, Jesus declared that the greatest commandment of all was to love God and others, or love God and to love our, neighbor, love our neighbors as ourselves. It's, his words are um, shadowed, you might say, echoed in our mission statement, which is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. One way in which we love others and to love God is by doing the same thing that Jesus did, which is to see, to notice, and to celebrate the gifts of all people. This morning, we uh, set aside our church alongside of other churches, sets aside this Sunday to remember that we see, we celebrate, uh, and we notice the gifts of people with differing abilities. Sometimes it's called Disability Sunday. As an all-belong church, a church that tries to do this on a recurring basis every single week, we uh, have resources uh, at our Welcome Center for folks that they can use. There's a sensory room right around the corner that people could use while they're here. And we have a missional community uh, that's intended to walk alongside of people and to help walk alongside of us as we become an even better accepting community, a place where all people with all of, of all abilities can come and worship and experience God. 
So this morning, our prayers are going to, our shadow prayer is going to include a prayer by St. Catherine of Siena that will spur us, hopefully, to love God and love others even more, and we'll end with a responsive prayer that will uh, be, invite you to uh, respond accordingly to the prayer. It was provided to us by our denomination to help us re- uh, take note of this special Sunday. So let's pray together. In your nature, eternal Godhead, I shall come to know my nature. And what is my nature, God of boundless love? It is fire, because you are nothing but a fire of love. And by this fire of love, you have made all other people and have created everything. O eternal Trinity, my sweet love, you light, give us light. You wisdom, give us wisdom. You supreme strength, strengthen us. Today, eternal God, let our cloud be dissipated so that we may perfectly know and follow your truth in truth with a free and simple heart. God, come to our assistance. Lord, make haste to help us. Let us pray for all God's people, for people who are blind and cannot see, and for those who can see but are blind to people around them, for people who are deaf and cannot hear, and for those who can hear but ignore the cries of others. Lord, in your mercy, help us to see and respond to each other. For people who move slowly because of accident, illness, or disability, and for those who move too fast to be aware of the world in which they live. For people who have chronic illness for which there is no known cure or relief, and for people who live in unholy fear of developing a chronic illness. Lord, in your mercy, help us and heal us. For families, friends, and caregivers who serve people with disabilities, and for those who feel awkward in their presence. For the people who think they are worthless and beyond your love, and for people who think they don't need your love. Lord, in your mercy, Help us see each other with your eyes and accept your love for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I invite you once more to stand as you are able and to join us in singing this greatest commandment, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself.
siblings in Christ, hear the good news. It is because of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection that we have peace with God and also with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. As you are comfortable, I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor. Those of you joining us in the chat, you can greet each other in the chat. That was so fun, I wanna try, don't move yet, okay? I'm a terrible substitute, but we're gonna try for this. When I point at you, you play your bell, okay? Ready? <laughs> <Right? laughs> <laughs> and that song was? <laughs> they did that despite me, as you can all tell. Here, you can scoot. Uh, the reason I wanted to do that, though, is they are inviting you, if you are so inclined, to come try it out today. You can come up after the service and check out the bells and learn a bit about what it might be like to join this team. It's one of the many here at Fellowship Church, and if you'd like to try, please do so immediately after the service. My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, and it's so good to gather with you for worship this morning, as we do every Sunday morning. So welcome if you are in this place 
Welcome if you are joining us online as well. A few details for our life together, celebrations and other things to share. First off, I want to invite Jess Mix to join me up uh, on stage here because it is the fifth year. We're celebrating five years for Jess in our midst. Wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> because of her five years, I've got five things to say relatively briefly. Sorry, this is torture for her, but I'm doing it anyways. Number one, Jess is a wonderful human being. You probably know this already. She is an A-plus musician. She's a friendly and cozy personality. She's a deep feeler. She speaks like a therapist. She has a creative mind. Uh, it's wonderful. That's number one. <laughs> number two, yeah, stay here. She's a great team builder. She uh, shepherds and stewards our musicians, our tech crews, and many other things, uh, helping many of the people at Fellowship Church put our gifts into practice. So thank you for doing that, and it is a gift to uh, the team and to all of us as well. Third, she's a COVID survivalist. In the past five years, we've been through COVID, and Jess really helped us to get the cameras, get a live stream, do all kinds of pivots through that season, and it is a seriously big gift to us here at Fellowship Church. Number four, she's a lifelong learner. She devours books and podcasts, and when she grows, we benefit, which is really cool. So thank you for bringing that with you here, Fellowship to fellowship, Jess. And lastly, she is a godly and Godward worship planner. She helps put together the services that we gather here in the morning, and they are integrated and honoring to God. And we are, uh, again, grateful for the many, many gifts beyond the five things I've just named here. So would you give her a warm thank you? Thank you, Jess. There's a gift right here that you can snag as you go back to, as part of our thank you. Hey, other details for our life together, and most of this stuff is in your bulletins, so please do look at that to find out what's going on lately. Two things I want to quickly draw your attention to that are upcoming events and they're fun opportunities, especially to belong here at Fellowship Church, to find uh, a place to belong and friends and more and have fun. Uh, one is the Fall Fest Chili Cook-Off, October 25. Uh, so mark your calendar for that. It's a Wednesday night. Uh, there's prizes for the best chili. It's a great gathering here and all kinds of other extra things uh, on that particular night. Then <laughs> pygmy goats. <laughs> She's excited about the pygmy goats. Uh, <laughs> And there's also, uh, next up is a trivia night, a high school fundraiser. It's a really fun night of all kinds of different trivia. That's on October 28. And you sign up in teams and just have a blast for that. So you can also sign up individually. Take note of that and partake in both of them. Again, they're great ways to belong here at Fellowship Church. Also in our bulletin, you know that there are care concerns. And we invite you to continually uh, lift those up before God. Uh, one that didn't make it in there before the printing is, uh, is sad news. Our dear friend Ruth Bohr passed away yesterday. And uh, so her funeral service will be coming up this coming Thursday at Freedom Village. And we join alongside Roger and other family members uh, to celebrate her life and mourn her loss. So take note of that. Uh, time will come out a little bit later, but Thursday of this week. Last but not least... It was my delight this week to find again in the scriptures, Exodus chapter 25, which is this passage in which God invites his people to be contributors. So much of the story that far along, God had done everything. They had been receivers. They had been takers. God freed them from slavery. God crossed, helped them cross the Red Sea. God fed them in the wilderness. They had received so much. But in Exodus chapter 25, God invites them to be contributors to give as their heart moves them to do so. Uh, and, uh, and, and so God invites them to be contributors in that place, and God promises that as they give, God will dwell. Not in the building that they build. God doesn't dwell in it. God dwells in them, is what the story says. God dwells among the contributors. And of course, at Fellowship Church, we're invited as well to be contributors and to find God's promise ringing true as we become contributors. God dwells among us as well. At Fellowship Church, you can give with the giving bowls in the back of the sanctuary, or you can give online as well. And we find together the joy of giving. 
As we continue in worship this morning, our kids are dismissed, ages three through eighth grade, to your various discipleship places, and we will continue in worship here in the sanctuary through singing. As we prepare to hear God's word preached, this song, you can just listen to it, or if you are comfortable and want to sing along, the words will be on the screen, but let's make this our prayer. pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day, so grateful to be able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can pray together and sing together and um, extend peace to one another and open our scriptures together. As we turn toward those scriptures, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear and that you would open our hearts that we might love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've not yet met you, um, and if I've not yet met you, I would love to meet you and hang out with you and have coffee with you. But uh, this morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been calling Casting Shadows. Uh, in this series, we're looking at some of the greats of the scriptures, uh, people with towering shadows like Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Esau. And if you were here last week, who do we cover? 
Shifra and Pua. Last service, someone said Pua first. <laughs> uh, because in and through these stories of these greats of the scriptures, we, we begin to see their, their greatness, but also their brokenness, their towering shadows, but also their shadow sides. And along the way, we'll also begin to discover some of our own greatness and also our brokenness, our own towering shadows, and even our shadow sides as faithful followers of Jesus. And so today we're going to continue this thread and explore a rather curious pair, uh, Moses and the law. Both Moses and the law cast a long shadow over the scriptures. And Moses is pretty understandable. He has an incredible story. Moses was the baby not just spared from a paranoid Pharaoh, but discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter. Moses, as a result, was the Hebrew kid raised as Egyptian royalty. Moses was the guy who angrily killed an Egyptian who was attacking one of his fellow Hebrews. And as a result, Moses was the guy who had to flee to the desert. And some 40 years later, Moses was the guy that God would call and send and use to rescue God's people from Egypt. Moses is the guy who parts the Red Sea. Moses is the guy who strikes the rock and water comes out again and again and again. Moses is the guy who prays and wars are won. Moses is the guy who sits face to face with the living God like a friend. Moses leaves a long shadow, but the law, those clunky stone tablets, those eventually 613 commands that make up the Torah, the 613 commands that turn some of God's people into hypocritical Pharisees and corrupt priests and condescending experts in the law. Robin Vaselin and I are co-hosting an immersed group in their home. And as our group gathered last week, uh, engaging in the first week of the readings, we discovered that a significant amount of real estate in the gospels features Jesus arguing not against tax collectors, not against sinners, but against experts in the law. The letter of the law kills, Paul says. And so the law, like Moses, may leave a long shadow, but unlike Moses, it's a pretty dreadful one. And yet, in the final book of the Torah, as Moses gathers the people to hear his final sermon, all 34 points of it, I think my sermons are long, uh, Moses, says to you, Moses says to the Hebrew people, listen to the statutes and the rules and the commands and the rituals that I taught you, and don't just listen to them, but obey them so that you may live, he says. But how on earth do two stone clunky tablets lead to life? And just what sort of life is being imagined here? And how does a prophet, an imperfect one, lead to life? And just what sort of life are we imagining here? And not just for the people of God in Moses' day, but even for faithful followers of Jesus in our own day. I wonder if Moses' very long final sermon has something to say to us about life and life to the full. So hear the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy chapter four, picking up in verse one. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. And then jumping down to verse five, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded you that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so." And then jumping over to Deuteronomy chapter six, verses five through six, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your, uh, with all of your soul and with all of your might. 
and these words that I command you today shall be written on your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text for today begins with commandments and statutes and rules and and rituals. And if we're not careful, we can forget to place this chapter back into its context. For instance, in Deuteronomy, we find Moses giving his final sermon. The entire book is his final sermon to the people. And in the first chapter, he gathers the people and begins to explain the law or explain this law, it says, that's been given to them. Only law here is this Hebrew word that you've heard before. You've heard it a million times before. Torah. Repeat after me. Torah. Okay, try this. Torah. (laughs) Not charismatic crowd. (laughs) Hands stay firmly at your sides. (laughs) Uh, So Torah, you can translate it as law, but it's better translated as instruction or direction or doctrine. Uh, Old Testament scholar John Walton argues quite extensively that Torah should be understood as covenant and wisdom or a kind of covenantal wisdom. Now, there's solid reasons to believe that Walton is heading in the right direction, even if you don't entirely agree with him. Uh, For instance, in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent convinces Eve not to rely on Yahweh for wisdom and understanding, but to rely on her own wisdom and understanding, and as such, she takes it on her own terms. She takes the fruit that would lead to knowledge of good and evil. And then there's Deuteronomy chapter four, the text that we just read, when God says to his people through Moses that their keeping of the law would be their wisdom and their understanding before their neighbors. Uh, Wisdom is this word, uh, chokmat. Repeat after me, chokmat. Uh, it's wisdom, but it's not a kind of abstract wisdom. It's, it's very technical on the ground wisdom. Uh, it's the kind of wisdom that you want your surgeon to have when they're like in the zone with you on the table. It's, it's a technical skill and know-how and ability. Uh, be not, uh, repeat after me, be not. Be not is understanding or it's discernment or it's insight into the path to choose or the way to go. And then there's Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter two, in which the nations stream to the mountain of God to learn to walk in the ways of the Lord from his Torah. The nations stream and they say to themselves, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the Torah or the instruction of God. Now, you might understand the Torah then as a collection of laws and statutes and rules and commands and rituals, but taken together, they form something like covenantal wisdom. But covenantal wisdom for what, you might ask? Well, in the ancient Near East, covenants were treaties and, or agreements or, or contracts between nations. And you might think of biblical covenants uh, in a pretty similar way because they're swimming in the same cultural waters. But the nuance being that the biblical covenants are more like binding relationships with heightened emphasis on the relationship part and the binding part and the doer of the covenant, which is our God. Moses reminds the people that God has made a covenant with them, a covenant that he keeps, even when they're not faithful themselves. And this covenant goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, God says. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham and Sarah get to see the first fruits of Yahweh's covenant in the birth of their son, Isaac. And by the time we get to Moses' stewardship of the covenant, uh, we are no longer a family of three. We're not even a a family of 14 with the 12 sons with Jacob and Israel, or Jacob who becomes Israel. Uh, Now we're a whole nation that has been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And they're on the cusp, the second generation of going into the land that was promised to Abraham and Sarah all those years ago. And so as Moses sits before the people in this final sermon, he begins to unfold for them the covenantal wisdom. And it's a reminder of their purpose. It's wise instruction aimed at their purpose. And what is their purpose? It goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah to not only be blessed, but then to be the conduit of God's blessing to the nations around them. So you might say then that it's wise instruction on the best way to live as God's covenant partners in blessing one another 
but also the nations around them. And as the psalmist says, or actually the proverbialist says, uh, (laughs) uh, the beginning of wisdom is reverence or fear or reverence for the Lord. But Deuteronomy adds, not just the Lord, but the Lord alone. In Deuteronomy chapter five, we note that the first two commandments, the first two commandments of the 10 commandments are about putting away other gods and also idols. In Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses reminds the people that the Lord alone is the one that they should revere and worship. They are not to bow to any other gods. The Hebrew Shema, the famous Hebrew Shema begins, the Lord is one, it says. The psalmist in Psalm 115 too reminds the people that the gods of the other nations are but mere idols. They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear and noses but don't smell. They have hands but don't feel and feet but don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And Moses reminds the people in Deuteronomy 4 that if they even dabble in the worship practices of the surrounding nations, they'll end up wholeheartedly serving gods of wood and stone that don't see or hear or eat or smell, he says. Now, several thousand years of Judeo-Christian tradition has taught us a thing or two about carved images. And then there was that whole Reformation thing where Protestants went into convents and monasteries and cathedrals with hammers smashing icons and, and carved images in their view. So most of us dread even the thought of an idol or an icon and probably think that all 36 members of the Fellowship Consistory would show up on your lawn if you were to make a carved image in your fireplace, like a holy flash mob in your neighborhood. But I wonder... I wonder if idols are a bit more subtle than that for us. For instance, note Deuteronomy chapter four, where Moses offers this rather involved litany to warn the people against making images. He reminds them that when God spoke to them at Horeb, at the mountain of God, there was no image, just a voice. And so Moses says, don't try to make a carved image in the likeness of male or female, he says, or, or any animal that is on the earth or, or any winged bird that is in the air or, or anything that creeps on the ground, not even a cute marmot or a rabbit or, or any fish in the waters below. And don't you dare, he says, raise your eyes to the heavens and see the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavenly hosts and then bow down to them in worship. Now, where have you heard this list before? two answers for me. It's either Jesus or Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, yeah. (laughs) So uh, this is, Moses recalls Genesis 1 narrative. Uh, Why? Because he's trying to remind them of the absurdity of making carved images of something that their God himself made with his own hands and then calling that thing the living God. But it gets even more interesting. Why should you not bow down and serve these things, Moses says? Because your God appointed them to serve you. God is the one who appoints them and distributes them and allots them and freely gives them to you, he says. And so to bow down and worship to any created thing or being is to invert the order of creation and the entire cosmos. It is to miss the plot. Now, you might be thinking, but Reverend T. Money, there's not a single instinct within me that would lead me to worship marmots, as cute as they are. And I would likely run from a grizzly bear rather than bow down and worship it. And I have really fair skin, so I basically avoid the sun three months out of the year. But Moses, it's okay, you can laugh. <laughs> but Moses warns them about the created things of Genesis 1 precisely because they're the gods of the surrounding nations. It was their Babylonian neighbors who worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars. In fact, they tracked the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars, which led them to believe that they should conquer their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. And it was their Ammonite neighbors who worshiped Moloch, a god whose face was sometimes depicted as a calf face that demanded the lives of their babies by fire. And it was their Mesopotamian neighbors who worshiped Ishtar, the fertility goddess who was not only depicted in the female form, but required that every young girl serve in the temple as a priest, offering herself to at least one stranger before she could be wed if she was to secure the blessing of fertility. You see, when the relationship between created things and humanity gets inverted, 
when we start to worship created things, when we start to sacrifice to created things, when we forget that everything in creation has been given to us freely from the hand of our God, not just for our sake, but for his glory and for his blessing in the world, when we forget the plot, so to speak, we end up doing some pretty terrible things to one another. Now, we may not be tempted to worship carved images that reflect the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky, but John Calvin says that the human heart is a factory of idols, idols that steal our love away from God. Essentially, we can make an idol out of virtually anything. In fact, Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor and founder of an amazing church in New York, who recently passed away himself, says that idols are often a good thing, a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing, which makes me wonder about the idols of our own time and culture and place, like beauty and strength, like youth or achievement or power or money or sex or, or being an insider or family or the self and autonomy and rugged independence. None of these are bad things on their own. In fact, they're very good gifts from God. But when we begin to bow to them, when we begin to worship them, when we begin to sacrifice others to them, they enslave us and they ensnare the people in our lives too. I wonder if when we look at our sin habits too, there's an indication of our idols like this need, this idol of recognition and attention and status, sometimes in the form of social media likes, or this idol of rest and leisure and idleness um, at the expense of our relationship with God or our responsibilities to the people entrusted to us, or this idol of financial security and gain or material goods uh, to the point of excessive frugality or cutting corners in business or even stealing from other people this idol of other people's lives and accomplishments and achievements and possessions and vacations. If we peer at our own sin habits long enough, we'll eventually discover the idol that has enslaved us. And our idols don't just enslave us, they also ensnare the people around us, making us a curse rather than a blessing in their lives. And why do we do this? I mean, don't we just know to not be terrible to other people? Don't we just know not to bow to idols? In theory, yes. Like if we would just listen to Moses' 34-point sermon, yes, we would know that. But there's something happening at the soul level for us that makes it a lot, uh, this a lot easier said than done. In the ancient Near East, uh, people would make images in iron furnaces. The image of an iron furnace, Moses uh, um, kind of locates in, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. Um, but God says to his people that he has rescued them out, out of the iron furnace precisely so that they could be his very own people, uh, his image to the world, so to speak. But notice what the iron furnace is. What is the iron furnace? It's in red. Egypt. Egypt is the iron furnace. I think that says something to us about what the furnace is like and the temptation to bow to idols and where it comes from. Egypt is a place of profound lack and injustice and desperation and deprivation. Uh, Egypt is a place of deficiency and longing and hunger. Um, Egypt is a place where things are not where they're supposed to be. On our best days, we would hardly bow before a statue and call it God. Our senses would get the better of us. That would be absurd, laughable even. But on our worst days, on our hardest days, on our most desperate days, on our God, where are are you days on the days when the furnace is turned all the way up and the fire is blazing all around us that's when the gods of the other nations seem to be most appealing but it's also in the furnace that we're often tempted to resolve our own challenges to choose our own way to lean on our own understanding and wisdom like eve to take matters into our own hands and we've proven that we're not so good at that Historically, humanity's solution to infertility has been temple prostitution. Even Abraham and Sarah, when they rely on their own understanding, out of desperation, they abuse her servant to get a child. Our solution to scarce resources has been to destroy other nations. Our solution to wanting the attention that our, our younger sibling received was murder. It's almost like we need the wisdom of the Lord to teach us how to die to our selfish instincts. The wisdom of the Lord to show God's people how to worship Yahweh instead of idols 
and in doing so, teaching them how to be a blessing to others rather than a curse. But is wisdom enough? I mean, how do you know the difference between rest and apathy, or between good stewardship and greed, or between desire and lust, or between righteous anger and wrath? The Torah and its wise instruction isn't enough on its own because the heart of the Torah's wise instruction is love, Moses says. Without love, wisdom just becomes a bunch of rules and commandments and regulations and rituals to follow and obey. With love, even laws and statutes and commandments become not just wisdom, but second nature for us. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. Moses says to them, and when asked to detail the greatest commandment, Jesus points back to these very words, everything, including our proper love of creation and neighbor and one another, all of it flows from our love of God. It's each aspect of our soul then being ordered away from the selfish, self-centered approach to the world and toward a holistic, full-bodied love of God. Love the Lord with your heart, your affections. Love the Lord with your resources, your strength, your relationships, your possessions. Love the Lord with your mind. Love the Lord with the path, the decisions that you make and the things that you pursue. Love the Lord with everything such that your whole being and your whole life becomes a beautiful, harmonized note of love and adoration to our God. Love goes beyond the law through to God himself for his own sake. Why love? Because love is the only thing that can shatter our idols. Love drives us more than the law ever could or will. But there's a relationship between the law and love. James K.A. Smith, he's a philosopher at an institution that I won't name, Calvin. <coughs> and uh, he said... <laughs> And he says, there's an inversely proportionate relationship between virtue or love and the law. The more virtuous someone is, um, that is the more they have an internal disposition to the good that bubbles up from their very character, the less they need the external force of the law to compel them to do the good. Love goes beyond the law because love is written on our hearts and the law along with it such that we spontaneously, willingly do it. It becomes as Moses said, our hukmat and our binat, our wisdom and our understanding. And it's all done for God's own sake, which is why these words should be written on your hearts, Moses says. Pick up the children's storybook Bible and teach these words to your children, Moses says. Go to Hobby Lobby and get the pillows and the wall art and the welcome mats because these words should be written on your home, Moses says. But remember that these words are not just written in your devotionals with your family and not just written on your walls. They should be written on your heart, Moses says. But they won't be, Moses says. In Moses' grand final sermon, he tells the people that they are going to fail miserably. Personally, I would have put it at the end, but he puts it in chapter four. Uh, in Moses' grand sermon, he says to them, they are going to fail. And when they do, though, God will still be faithful to his covenant because even when they're exposed to the consequences of their own actions, he will still be their faithful God, always near to them when they call upon him. And somehow even their failure in his hands will become a brilliant opportunity for redemption, both for them and also for us. And that redemption will come through a prophet, one who will be like me, Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that prophet will proclaim the Torah and, and he you will listen to, he will, you will hear, he you will follow. This is the one who comes that we might have life in him and life to the full. It is in and through Christ that the law leads to life because Christ perfectly obeys the wise instruction of the Torah, but he shows us how to do it from perfect love of God and others. In Christ, perfect wisdom and perfect love come together. And because of his blood covering every sin, every moment of selfishness, every instance of death that we have wrought in the world, because his spirit then seals the promise of that covenant, forgiveness of sin, and even eternal life for those who trust in Christ on our very souls, because that same spirit pours the love of God into our hearts, not only writes the law in our hearts, but guides us as we discern the best way to go and the best way to live in real time from day to day. And ultimately, it is that same spirit who conforms us to the image of a perfect love of God and others so that we might glorify and not just glorify, but enjoy our God and his people forever. Would you pray with me?
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for the gift of communion with you. And we are so grateful that when we went on our own, when we went in our own path, um, that you didn't let us get the last word, but that you came to us, that you redeemed us, that you restored us, and that you brought us back into relationship with yourself, and that you send us, that you send us to point the way and to testify to the way that you have loved us and restored us in and through Jesus Christ. And so help us to um, see your law, help us to hear your wisdom, help us to follow the path, and Lord, help us to love you well, and in doing so, in doing so, to proclaim the name of the God who loved us first and loves us even when we're unfaithful and loves us even to the end of time. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, I invite you to stand and we're going to sing together, Build My Life.
we have a word from the president of our congregation, Linda Milanowski-Westorp. Thank you, Jess. Good morning. I am here this morning to spread the word that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. So. <laughs> And I learned very early on in my career that it's important to pay attention how people like to be recognized and how maybe they don't. And standing up there, I'm just not gonna go there because that's really hard to be talked about in front of all of you. But on behalf of the consistory and the congregation, I just wanna express how grateful we are for each of you as individuals and as a team. We're appreciative of the personal commitment that you made a long time ago that's long and deep in your faith to Christ, and also with your complimentary gifts as a team and your commitment to one another and to building that team, and how this community and the community beyond and in our missions all benefit from the complimentary gifts that God has given you. Personally, it's been a pleasure and honor to work with you in the last year, and I'm excited I've got almost another year to go, um, to see how you and the whole team so there's, we're being very intentional about bringing in the staff because we know every single person and leader on the staff both informs and propels the work that Christ is doing in all of our lives. So we give thanks for the whole staff. And uh, we have up here, I forgot to mention this the first time, but we have up here, um, it's, it's a personalized wooden bowl from the Holland Bowl Company. And I think it's pretty cool that it's... Uh, I, my colleague, Glenn Lau, helped me out with this, and I appreciate that. And it's also got a little gift certificate to the peanut store to help fill it. But I think it's beautiful because it really feeds into our theme of hospitality and inviting people into our homes, and I love that. So closing with an excerpt from 1 Timothy, I remember your genuine faith, and I know the same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. For God has not given a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. May the God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you, our staff, and your families who support you every day, grace, mercy, and peace. Please join me in expressing appreciation to our city. the final staff member. That was good timing. <laughs> uh, friends, let's give thanks by closing our time with the doxology, praising God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. in peace.